Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. The title of this message is You Will Be Holy for I Am Holy. And those are the words of God. And so I also want to pray um, that God would do just that, is bring us into a great understanding of what that means. So, Heavenly Father, thank you, Dad, so much that we get to come here together. And so, God, we just pray right now for your purposes to be fulfilled, for you to have your will done. Yeah, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be kept holy here during this time, God, and throughout all of our lives. Your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Man. So I want to start today with a, a little sentence that I think maybe some people here have heard before, and I think it's a transformative sentence. Many people have shared life stories of, my life was in shambles, and someone told this to me, and it, it blessed me, and it gave me courage that maybe there's some hope for me. And that is just, God loves you and has a plan for your life and a purpose for you. Great thing to say. You say it to people all the time. A lot of people need to hear it. But then, of course, we need to ask ourselves, what's that purpose? And a lot of times the answer is people say, like, you're meant to be in the ministry. Or, like, you're going to do your job, but the way you're going to do your job, you're going to share Jesus at your job. Or you're going to be a great husband or dad or, you know, whatever. That's great. Very important purpose. Pray those things over people. But that's not our primary purpose. Because those are temporary things. When we're in heaven, I'm not going to be like, you know, I work with international students. Woo! Like, that's not, that's not, no one's going to be thinking about that then. We'll be focused on bigger things, right? And so what is God's purpose for us as individuals and collectively that's actually eternal? And so to start for understanding that, I want to start where Jesus starts. So in the Gospels, we see that Jesus, he says a lot. He teaches a lot of things. But it's interesting to note that he doesn't actually speak that long in public very often. His longest public message is about 15 minutes, less even. I'm going to speak longer. So Jesus, <laughs> just forewarning. So Jesus, he, he, he uses his words very intentionally. But if he says something for a long time, like he has a prolonged speech, that means really pay attention probably. Because he really doesn't speak long unless he needs to. And a lot of times when he speaks the longest, it's also in private. It's just with his disciples or to a specific group. And so Jesus starts his ministry at 30 years old, he's been on the earth, but just relatively quiet. Very few people even know that the Messiah is here. And suddenly he comes out and he starts healing people and he brings a singular announcement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he doesn't really say anything else until this message. In the next chapter, chapter 5, he's been healing people. Miracles have been happening. He's finally publicly showing himself. And so he starts in chapter 5 and going from verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven. Sorry, Matthew says differently. Kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me find a place. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people uh, speak against you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is worth nothing but to be trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set in a hill cannot be hidden. But people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, so it gives light to all in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I'll stop there for now. I remember reading this when I was in ninth grade, 15 years old, and I just got introduced to like the idea of Bible study. I read a book about basketball players who are doing it. I was like, oh, I like them, so I'll give this a try. And I thought I would just read the whole thing cover to cover. Um, so I knew about Adam and Eve. I heard of them once before in Catholic Church. So I, I started reading that. I was like, okay, familiar enough. And I get to Noah. I was like, this is a little bit different, but okay. Moses, I'd seen the Prince of Egypt by like um, DreamWorks. It was a little different in the movie, but I was like, okay, okay it's a little different, but uh, this is interesting. And then Moses start te- starts teaching about all the Jewish laws. And that goes for 20 chapters of Exodus. And then you get to Leviticus, and it's 27 chapters more of the same stuff. And I, I did actually get through that after a few months, but by the end of it, I got to numbers. I was like, I'm done. Like, I literally just stopped. Um, and I didn't know what to do because I was really interested in, like, I, I, I think that God's drawing me, and I know the Bible's a really key part of, like, drawing near to God, but I just didn't understand anything, I felt like. And I was like, I don't think I'm meant to keep kosher. Like, I'm not Jewish at all. So... Eventually, months later, I decided one night, I'm just going to skip ahead. <laughs> Hope God will forgive me. I've shared this story before, but I think it's worth sharing. And it's like 3 a.m. I'm jet lagged. I'm like, you know, I've been watching these YouTube videos and stuff about Jesus. Let me just check some of that stuff out because I'm really intrigued by it. But I'm not going to, I looked how many pages are in between. I'm like, I'm not going to make it anytime soon. So I skipped to Matthew and I started reading. And I remember I got to this. For about eight, nine, ten months, I'd started feeling this sense of just total spiritual poverty. I was like, I feel like I know nothing. I thought I was like, I, people ask me, what's your religion? I was like, I'm Catholic. Like, my grandma's Catholic. Like, you know, and all of a sudden, I had no idea about God. And yet, I was more curious about him than I'd ever been. And I thought that was wrong. I thought, man, I need to learn quickly so I'm not, don't feel this anymore. And I read this and went, oh, that's not wrong at all. In fact, it's never going to be wrong. We will still be poor in spirit if we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. So I actually felt very poor in spirit preparing for this this week. And I'm sure that was God's intention. And throughout the, this text, we see things that we wouldn't expect as this is how Jesus decides to define how do you live holy? How do you live in a way that's worthy of the kingdom of heaven? The most holy place, the kingdom of God. Be merciful. Be meek. Hunger and thirst for God and never stop hungering and thirsting. Be persecuted for things that you do that really people don't like, but if it's for Jesus' sake. And that shocked me, but also comforted me a lot because I was talking about Jesus a lot. People like, that is so weird. Please be quiet. I was like, oh, Jesus is saying you're doing a good thing. You're on the right track. Just be careful sometimes how much you say it. But anyway, the point being that the kingdom of God is in a current and a stream that's completely different to the current of this world. So if we want to understand what holiness means in terms of a practical sense, like what is our lives meant to look like, this is our blueprint. This is where we start. Disciples never made it past this one. Read the letters later on. They're still talking about this stuff. And so, so should we. We should keep going deeper here. But 
it's interesting then that after this, Jesus says some things that really threw me off in relation to what I'm describing. So starting from verse 17 of Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's troubling to me about this is he's basically saying, when you read Leviticus, I care about that stuff. And in fact, if you get rid of it, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, at that time, I'd actually started to believe in Jesus. I, I was like, I think Jesus really did die on my behalf and rise from the dead so I could have new life also. I believed in that. So that meant by that token, I was in the kingdom of God. That's, that's all you need. But he says, if you want to do anything of worth for the kingdom of God, you need to understand what he came to fulfill. And to understand what he came to fulfill, you have to understand all the laws that he's teaching on. Because the rest of this chapter, he just quotes the Ten Commandments, the laws of Moses, and offers perspective on what those things really mean. For example, the next one he gets to, you've heard it said, do not murder. One of the Ten Commandments in most places, a law. He's saying, if you can't just stop there, though. If you're angry with your brother and not your mother's son, but just another fellow Israelite or person at all, and you curse them and you speak vile things against them, you're murdering them in your heart. No better. He says lust, and this is the one that convicted me as a 15-year-old. If you're looking at someone with lustful intent, you might not commit adultery with them, but it's adultery in your heart in God's sight. And of course, I'm sure the people listening to this were shocked. Like, I, I mean, I hadn't committed adultery, but I didn't realize I was still breaking the law. And Jesus goes on and on. He talks about loving your enemies. Yeah, it says, it says you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's in the law of Moses. That's how they governed in Israel. You couldn't take off someone's whole body if they just took off your arm, but you could take off their arm. But he's saying, your job is not to try and be exacting and make sure you get back whatever someone took from you. Your job is actually to forgive, re reconcile. Of course, that's the law, but your desire should not be to just punish other people because they hurt you. So he goes through all these things. I mean, reading this stuff, I'm like, I've never heard anyone talk like this. This is a far higher standard than I've ever heard before. It's holy is what it was. But then he says something very interesting at the end. And I'm reading this from, I'm reading all of this from the ESV today, but with the exception of this verse, this is coming from um, verse 48 of Matthew 5. Reading from the NASB, it's similar in the NIV, NKJV. The reason I chose this one, it's the most similar to the Greek. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If anyone listens to this list, there's no way you're thinking, I can meet this. None at all. At least I didn't feel any, and if you do, you should probably look, and look through this a little bit more. <laughs> but the point Jesus is making is, though, that you will be perfect, though. You'll be perfect because your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's His character. And if you're your Father's child, then you'll just be like Him. Amen. And so that gave, us a lot, gave me a lot of thought. Oh, what, what on earth does He mean by that? What is He trying to describe and when he said this to the old Jewish audience he was speaking to especially his disciples and then all those who were gathered around listening they would have inevitably heard what Moses spoke to the people of Israel at the command of God in Leviticus 19 verse 2 speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them 
you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So same sentence structure. Just instead, it's perfect instead of holy and your father instead of your God. And so Jesus is essentially just reinstating that same verse. He's saying, I'm coming to fulfill that. But the way I'm going to fulfill it is restore people to their father. So if we want to live holy lives, that's our first thought. Okay, I cannot do this by purely my own effort. It comes from an identity. It comes from a faith that God in heaven could be my dad. But in order to fully understand, how do we get there? Why, why is Jesus saying this now? Why is God saying this now? Why didn't he tell Moses to say it then? Is we need to understand what is Jesus saying when I came to fulfill all these things? What was he referring to and why is he calling us back to that? So I want to go back to what time was Israel in when Moses spoke this? And the context was that the Israelites were in the wilderness. Uh, sorry, we're in Egypt. They portray this part decently well in the Prince of Egypt movie. That they're in slavery. They're in oppression. And God hears their cries of oppression. And so he decides, I want to free my people. And so he leads them out with the plagues and leads them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, away from the people of Egypt. And he says, you will be my people, I will be your God. And then in that context, Moses goes up the mountain, Mount Sinai, receives the Ten Commandments, and all these really specific instructions, very detailed, about this tent he's meant to build where God's presence will dwell and the priests and what they're meant to wear and how they're meant to keep themselves ritually clean so that they could go into the tabernacle or the tent of meeting to be with God. And what are the conditions for a priest? It had to be descendants of the son of Israel. Had 12, Israel had 12 sons. One was Levi. Only his descendants could be priests. All the specific stuff. And it seems very strange, as it did to me when I was reading Leviticus. It didn't make any sense at all. But it's purposeful is what Jesus is saying. All the law and the prophets... Every single thing he came to fulfill. So if you do away with it, you can enter the kingdom of God, but you'll be the least. And that this is what is perplexing at the same time is in the passage we were just talking about. He says, your righteousness, though, to enter the kingdom of heaven needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes are the ones who are writing down this law of Moses that I'm talking about. All the detailed stuff. They're writing that down. That's their full time job. That's all they do. No printing press, no HP printer. That's, what, that's their job. So as they're doing this, surely they must know it pretty well. And they could even teach people about it. And the Pharisees, that was essentially their job. We read this many times in the Gospels. They have teachings about this is what the law of Moses says, and this is how we can apply it. On the Sabbath, this is how far you can walk. This is how much you can carry. It doesn't detail that in Moses' book, but the Pharisees kind of apply this stuff. And Jesus says, actually, they don't get into the kingdom of heaven either. You need to be in better standing with God than they are. So clearly you can understand this all and completely miss the whole thing. And you could not know anything and get into the kingdom of God because of Jesus somehow. But he's saying, if you really want the riches of all I have for you, you need to understand what I came to fulfill, which is actually what these people taught. And so Jesus is telling us something very interesting here about he's come to fulfill what Moses had started, essentially, what God had done through him. So Moses is told to build build this tent of meeting, which later becomes uh, the tabernacle that stays in one spot in Israel. And then in the time of David, he says he wants to build God a house so he could stay there. And Solomon, his son, eventually does. And something to understand about this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, is there was an outer court. There was an outer sanctuary. There was a, it was called the holy place, but it wasn't the holy of holies. The holy place only priests could go into when they had been consecrated. They had been made holy, sanctified. So they had special washing rituals and everything they had done. They could go in, and even then, they had to make sacrifices for themselves in the outer court on the altar. 
then they could go into the holy place. But only the high priest could go into the holy of holies once a year on the day of atonement. And in that place, there were these big winged statues made of gold. And they represented these creatures that God told them, you need to design these things. And they're not idols. They don't represent God. They represent things around God. And God speaks to Moses, actually, and this is quoted in the New Testament also, and tells him that you need to make sure that you make everything according to the pattern show you. So this is actually a quote from the New Testament talking about the tabernacle of Moses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So it's a copy of something that's actually in heaven. It wasn't just God was got this people and now he's like, how can I dwell among them? I'll think something up. He said, I want heaven to be on earth. So this is where we start. Build this tent. These people can go in. The rest can't. These people can go to the altar, everyone. But past that, only the priests. And God spent a lot of time doing this diligently. So he wasn't just doing this without thought about what would to come after it. And every year, the sacrifices that would happen on the Day of Atonement would have to be repeated. So there's something about it that it wasn't quite a fulfillment of. It was just a start. It was a foreshadowing to something later on. But this is what's really interesting in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a prophet coming much later on. This is when the temple is built, so it's a firm structure. And he has this vision. And in the vision, he is in the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, in the temple. And he sees the throne of God. And Moses, who established all of this, God spoke to him to how to make the tent of meeting and how to consecrate the priest. God told him, if you see my face, you'll die. So just, I'm going to cover you so you only just see the little bit of back of me because I'm so holy. I want to be close to you. But there's a really good video the Bible Project makes about this. But it's like the sun. You get too close. It's just so hot. You'll just die. But you also need me close because otherwise you won't have any life in you. So God speaks to Moses this way, but he doesn't see his face at all. Isaiah is suddenly in the Holy of Holies looking at God. And he is so scared. He's petrified. He says, woe is me. I've seen the Lord and the King on his throne. I'm a dead man. And if anyone here is, I mean, sure, I'm quite confident no one's had anything of this intensity. But if you ever had an encounter with like the presence of God where you suddenly realize like God is actually real. It's, it's kind of scary. In fact, it should be. So I've been talking about the fear of the Lord. When you first encounter that, the only thing you can say is, holy, oh my goodness, God, you're here, you're afraid. And that's the right response. That's, that's how you know it. This must be Jesus. It's something so far beyond me. I'm petrified of it. You, you might want it to even go away. Isaiah was not like, Lord, keep me here. He was like, ah, God. You know? And so this is the context of, we need to understand how holy God is if we want to be able to say, I really understand the fullness of what Jesus did and what it meant for me. Because Jesus is trying to give us something really precious. So Isaiah sees this all, and he cries out, and he actually specifically says something about his lips. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, starting in verse 5 of chapter 6. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah is not meant to be in this place. And what he specifically recognizes about himself that is unholy is his lips. 
And Jesus actually says that mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He's saying that my mouth has not has spoken things my heart is full of, and they are not all holy. And I don't repeat with the people who their hearts are full of things that are not good, and they say spew out a lot of things that are not holy. I cannot be here, God. And this is what's fascinating is that a hot coal is taken from the altar of one of these living creatures, the ones they had the big golden statues of in the Holy of Holies. They're real things, Isaiah finds out. He sees them, and it takes this tongue, gets a coal, and presses it to his lips. And I heard someone else point this out, actually, Church of the City. They were like, how scary is that to have a hot coal thrown at your face? But Isaiah doesn't seem to mind at all because he's just still terrified of God. And when it touches him, instead of burning him and probably what it should do, killing him, he's cleaned and his sin is atoned for. And then this is also Isaiah is not actually like, okay, wow, I'm clean. My, my, my lips are clean. Wow, this is so interesting. Thank you, God. He goes out commissioned right after this. Then all the next verses is Isaiah hearing God say, who will go and speak on my behalf? Your lips now, yours are clean enough that you can speak my holy words to this people. So God's holiness, it's not just something that we receive something from. Wow, what a precious touch. It's for something too. It transforms us. God's holiness transcends everything. Absolutely. But it's also, it's not holy if it doesn't actually have a transforming power. When Jesus touched lepers, they got clean. Jesus didn't become unclean. If a priest touched a leper, they couldn't go into the tent of meeting at all. Jesus is the holiness of God manifests in a person. And so this call is, in a sense, a picture of Jesus. And so then we go on to the New Testament. And we see that there are these analogies being made by all the apostles saying Jesus is, is many things, actually, that the temple represents. And there's three specifically I want to mention. He's the sacrifice. He's the high priest who can go into the Holy of Holies. And finally, he's actually like the beginning of the house itself, which can get a little confusing, but we'll get to that in a second. So I want to go to First um, Peter. This is chapter 1, starting in verse 14. So now that we brought to this place of, okay, we need to be reconciled to God, and it's not something we can do. God has to clean us, and he does that by making us his children. And so Peter is writing to a, as a Jewish man to a mostly Gentile audience in this context. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So every year we're mentioning the tabernacle, there would be the Passover feast and the Passover of a lamb would be sacrificed. And I've spoken about this before actually, that Jesus was sacrificed on Passover for this reason. That's why John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Moses instituted the Passover to free the Israelites, Jesus was saying, I'm actually the fulfillment of that also. And so Peter is saying, we are able to now go into this place of we can live a totally new way a way that we never used to even think about living this way because of a sacrifice that was made for us. We've been touched, in a sense, by a coal. We've been touched by something that was put on the altar. And it's actually God, God himself, 
was slain in a human form, the lamb slain, and now we're free. We're clean when we were not. And so even personally, on a personal note, I felt this in worship. If there's anything that you feel like, I am so unclean, could be something you've done, something done to you, Jesus, he can take that. That's what he took on the cross. Everything. But then going on in chapter 2, starting from verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're priests now. God spoke to the whole people of Israel, actually, in Exodus. They were all priests in a sense. They were a holy nation under him. But now... God does not replace Israel at all, but he's brought about a new covenant through the fulfillment of all his promises to Israel so that Jew and Gentile alike can be made one as a priesthood to God. So wherever you are on the earth at any given time, your role is a priest. That does not mean you are celibate and you wear robes. It means you're a priest according to the work of God. Jesus is the high priest. We follow his example, and he's gone where we have not gone yet, into the Holy of Holies, not just on earth, in heaven. No one here has seen God, yet Jesus has, and so he's there on our behalf, but then we can also intercede for people with him. We can do things like touching the sick and they be healed with him because we've been brought into this priesthood. The other thing about this that's important is that we're now sacrifices too. It says here that we are also meant to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. In Romans it says, you are living sacrifices. We're alive, but we're also constantly in fulfilling Jesus' teaching, living in a way that the world would not without it. And that's holy to God. It's precious. So when you decide to forgive someone that you otherwise know you would not have forgiven if it wasn't for Jesus, that is holy and precious to God. It's like a sacrifice on the altar. I'm laying this down before you. So know that this this is precious to him. And so he had us see this image of people putting down animals that they had raised themselves and brought from afar to a priest and they would lay their hand on the animal with the priest as they would slaughter it so that their sin would be taken from them. That's, that's something that's just foreshadowing now what we've got. Now Jesus also says that we're living stones. It goes on from uh, verse uh, 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Jesus is saying is the same people, the Jewish people, who had built the temple, They were also the ones who, in a sense, with the help of the Romans, so Jew and Gentile alike, but they actually didn't believe in Jesus, and they were so stuck to their understanding of religion, the Pharisees, the scribes, that they killed God. So that stone that Jesus was laying, the new foundation for the temple that is not made with stones, but with living stones in people, he's building his kingdom on that, on himself, on his sacrifice. And if people didn't believe in that, then they couldn't be involved at all. So we now are being built up in the house of God. And why we say, you, you, my body is a temple. You are a temple is what the, Paul says. And he says it in the plural. We're a temple for God. Not just one of us. All of us together. And that's why we need to be unified. 
brought together in love. And that's why our lives collectively are being made holy because God's dwelling place is meant to be a holy place so He can dwell there in its fullness. When the temple was defiled, God left. So left the presence of God. So if we ourselves and our communities are doing things that don't fit what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're not able to fulfill that, then we're actually endangering ourselves from losing a bit of God. So being holy, it's got relational ramifications. It's not for the sake of religion at all. Jesus was killed by people who were fixed on a religious system. So this is what Jesus is talking about. Understand all of the law and prophets. Do not throw them away at all. They are essential. But don't get so hung up on them that you miss what they're meant to talk about, which is me. That's what Jesus was saying. And so now we talk about this is like, this is our current standing, right? We are the priests of God on the earth. We are sacrifices. But then what does this look like eternally in heaven? What will this be? And so I want to turn to two passages. But um, first and foremost, I want to go to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. And then we'll go to Revelation and we'll close. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The tent the Lord set up. We have a minister there in heaven. Yet, what is Jesus saying then by calling us salt and light? When he talks about salt, the only way that salt was really properly used in the Old Testament about a covenant of salt, which is another topic, is every time a grain offering was brought into the holy place, so not the holy of holies, but the one just outside by the priests, they had to bring salt. It's a really fascinating thing, and I was reading like one commentary, Enduring Word, about why is that. Salt was considered uh, precious and valuable, so of course there's just something about God says that we're precious and, precious and valuable, like in First Peter, he's just saying chosen and precious. So don't lose the thing that gives you value. But... The two other meanings which are specific is, one, salt actually adds flavor. If salt has lost its taste, how should saltiness be restored? When you add salt to food, if it had no flavor, you would throw out that salt. Jesus is saying our flavor is actually like the seasoning we have on what would just a normal piece of bread is not worth anything at all to bring into the temple. But when it's seasoned, it's holy for some reason. He's saying, let your lives be seasoned with salt. Be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Never lose that flavor. The Christians who believe in Jesus and follow his teaching are actually the flavor of the earth to God. It's what gives him enjoyment. It's what gives him pleasure. He told the priests, eat this bread with me. He actually commanded them. They had to eat the bread in the holy place to have fellowship with him. And I know he told them, add salt because this has flavor to it. God gets things taste good. He made that. But then also salt has another function. It's preservative. At that time, there were no refrigerators. If you had a piece of meat and you wanted to preserve it, you add a lot of salt. And we still do that now, jerky and stuff like that. Salt is being used as a preservative, but God's saying, we are now the salt of the earth. We're priests to God. And God scattered the priests all around the tribes of Israel to preserve Israel and keep them fixed on God. We're now meant to be scattered all around the earth. And we're meant to preserve the earth because he says sin brings decay. It brings death. He told Adam and Eve that and it's stayed true ever since then. And so wherever sin is, which is everywhere, there's decay, there's corruption, there's stuff that's actually destroying the earth. It says when Jesus comes back, he does actually say he'll destroy the destroyers of the earth. I don't want to be a destroyer of the earth. So I need salt. I need to have that taste, that flavor, that preservative power that keeps the world from just spiraling into chaos. And then the next thing he says is you are the light of the world. This one I'm a little less sure about. I didn't read this in a commentary. But 
Outside of the tent of meeting, there's the altar, and everyone could go there without exception. And the altar was a place, obviously, people would reconcile themselves to God. They said, Lord, I didn't even realize it at the time, but I sinned. And so I want to come and reconcile with you. That altar was meant to be kept burning day and night. That was the priest's job. They were commanded to do that. And yet, who started the fire? Do we see any instructions about that from God? No, none. Because both with the tent of meeting and with the temple, you see this very vividly. Fire comes down from heaven when they build the altar, consumes it, and that fire just keeps going. And they're just meant to keep that fire started by God going. So who started the fire for us as Christians? God. At Pentecost, they're up in the upper, uh, the upper room, and suddenly they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and it says, tongues of fire came on their heads. So God's like, this is my altar. This is my new church that I'm building. People can come to these people and be reconciled to God. And surely enough, Peter, right after getting that fire, walks out, tells people exactly what's just happened, and 3,000 people believed in Jesus on that day. Oh, this is the altar now. The altar is the people of God. People go to the people of God to meet with, you believe in Jesus? You have the power of the cross? Please let me understand that because then I could enter God's kingdom. And so do not lose that light. Because when that altar was built, it was outside. And that altar was also put in a temple, a temple or a tent of meeting that was always elevated. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, the temple is on a, a mount. So people from afar in the middle of the night, if they looked outside, they might actually see the fire from that altar still going. We're meant to be there. No matter how dark, people look at our lives and say, I can still see light there. I still see opportunity to be reconciled to God. Amen. And this is a shadow, though, still of the heavenly things. So what do we get to in its fulfillment? Going to Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to close here. There's this picture of, we described before, there are living creatures around God's throne that constantly cry out, holy, holy, holy. And I mentioned this in the first service also. My friend Jack's here I went to college with. And we talked about this. Why do they say, Jack actually asked, why do they say holy, holy, holy instead of like love, love, love. And God is love. It says that in the Bible. Don't diminish that. This is meant to elevate it actually. God's love is so holy, we should not define it ourselves. We should let him define it. That's the first characteristics we should see when we see him. So there's a scene, John seeing, Isaiah saw the same thing. Other prophets, Ezekiel saw it. These living creatures crying out, holy, holy, holy. But John sees something that no one's ever seen before. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The same lamb that Peter was talking about. And that lamb has this power and authority that no person in heaven or on earth has. No being can do this. Has the ability to actually break the seals on the scroll that unleashes what God is going to do to bring the, return, the end of the world, the return of Christ. When God's kingdom will come and there will be those in the kingdom and those out. And God wants everyone to be in that kingdom. And so he gave himself as the lamb that was slain so that anyone who wants to be made holy enough to enter in can come. They just have to believe the sacrifice. That's it. And so God is telling us something, though, about our destiny, too, because it says that the lamb was there. And then it says in verse 9, Worthy you to take the scroll and open its seals, which I was just mentioning. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is our destiny, to be priests to God forever. Priests who love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and love one another, love our neighbor as ourselves. Fulfill that perfectly forever. That's why heaven's perfect. 
And so there's an invitation for everyone here. First and foremost, come and be made holy. If you've never received that before, there is an invitation open. And I'll have the worship team come up now. There's an invitation open to be reconciled to God, to be made holy when we ourselves never can be, to be in a relationship with Him that we don't deserve, to experience His love in ways that we couldn't fathom. And it came through the Lamb being slain on our behalf. And there's also an invitation to all of us who already believe in it to be made holy in the sense that we're going to fully follow the teachings of Jesus the more we understand who our Father is and what He wants. We're going to eternally be doing God's will forever. And that will is ministering to God and loving one another. And so let that be a reminder for us as we're waiting for that day to come, what kind of lives should we live? What are we going to be doing forever? So are we headed towards that or away from it? So yeah, in closing, Father, thank you so much, God, for what you've done for us. Yeah, Jesus, as you were killed, you were pressed to that cross and the nails were put into you. In the same way, when a sacrifice was killed, they'd lay hands on it. And so Jesus, we just acknowledge you died for us. Us who killed you, us who sinned, you took on. You died because of us. You didn't need to die, but you died because of us. So God, would you just speak to our hearts, the questions we have about you, the things stopping us from coming into that rest you promised us, not wondering, promised us, not wondering if we can have our sin atoned for, we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled to you. If we can just grow in relationship with you, Father, you answer it all. Yeah, that's something I sense really strongly. There's an invitation right now into the rest of God. When we believe in Jesus, we rest from our works because we don't get in because of them. And that's actually what transforms us to live holy lives. So God, I just thank you for that rest on your people right now. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.